people today. Um, I mean, Bonnie is our most beautiful scripture reader, though, so maybe next week. Um, and I'm not kidding about that. She's really good at reading the Word. Um, but I do want to affirm a couple, a couple of more people like to do this every now and again. Um, as you turn to Genesis chapter 18, first book of the Bible, Genesis chapter 18. Um, but we do have a lot of we have a lot of people who do a lot of things behind the scenes that you may not realize. So just if, if you've ever uh, if you found us online through Instagram, through Facebook, through any means like that, you have Talia Kendrick to thank for that. But Talia does a great job of of quietly doing that behind the scenes. Some of you may not even you may have thought I did it, um, as someone did this week who who called me and was like, "Who does your social media? Do you do your social media? It's amazing. Can you help me with that?" And I'm like, "No, no, 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 it is not me." It is Talia. So, yeah, I know. Um, it's non-existent. I'm not even on social media So right now. So, um, so we're really grateful for Talia. Thank you so much for the hard work you put in. And that is a lot of work um, to do. And then also, if you have a worship guide in your hand, um, you can thank um, Jonah and Caitlin Andrews for that. I don't know if they're even... Did I just call... Oh, they're here. Okay, sorry. I was about to, about to say... But they, they print the worship guides every week. They fold the worship guides for you. They get the scripture notes in there for you, or the sermon notes in there for you every single week. And so I'm uh, really thankful for you guys, and we're really appreciative of that. So just, just so you know that I don't do everything here. So um, this is all. I only work on Sundays. So um, it's a joke. Um, so we're thankful for everybody who, who kind of puts in the hard work on top of having kids and jobs and all, all these other things that are happening in their everyday life and they, they give themselves to the body in this way so that you can, have, you can, you can worship um, well on Sundays and throughout the week as well. So Genesis chapter 18 is where we find ourselves this morning and we are only looking at the first 15 verses this morning. So the first 15 verses there in Genesis chapter 18 and I'll read this for us. And the Lord appeared to him by the oaks of Mamre as he sat at the door of his tent in the heat of the day. He lifted up his eyes and looked, looked, and behold, three men were standing in front of him. When he saw them, he ran from the tent door to meet them and bowed himself to the earth and said, O Lord, if I have found favor in your sight, do not pass by your servant. Let a little water be brought and wash your feet and rest yourself under the tree while I bring a morsel of bread that you may refresh yourselves and after that you may pass on since you have come to your servant. So they said, Do as you have said. And Abraham went quickly into the tent to Sarah and said, Quick, three shades of fine flour, knead it and make cakes. And Abraham ran to the herd and took a calf tender and good and gave it to a young man who prepared it quickly. Then he took curds and milk and the calf and the calf that he had prepared, and set it before them. And he stood by them under the tree while they ate. They said to him, Where is Sarah your wife? And he said, She is in the tent. The Lord said, I will surely return to you about this time next year, and Sarah your wife shall have a son. And Sarah was listening at the tent door behind him. Now Abraham and Sarah were old, advanced in years. The way of women had ceased to be with Sarah. So Sarah laughed to herself, saying, After I am worn out and my Lord is old, shall I have pleasure? The Lord said to Abraham, Why did Sarah laugh and say, Shall I indeed bear a child now that I am old? Is anything too hard for the Lord? At the appointed time I will return to you about this time next year, and Sarah shall have a son. But Sarah denied it, saying, I did not laugh, for she was afraid. He said, No, but you did laugh. 
This is God's word. It's entirely true and it's given to us in love. Let's pray together. Father in heaven, we thank you for your word. We thank you for how it guides us, how it guards us, how it speaks to us even now as we read these words that were written so many years ago. So God, help us now to have ears to hear, to have minds to understand, and have hearts to receive what you have to show us from your holy word this morning. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Now for those of us uh, who are old enough and have lived before iPhones, uh, if you would have told us 30 years ago that one day we would carry around essentially a mini computer in our pocket, we would have said, or at least I would have said, that's impossible. That's crazy talk. I was having a conversation with my son the other day in, in, our, in, the, in our car about self-driving cars. And I told him that probably within the next 10 to 15 years, uh, this would be the norm, that a lot of us would be driving self-driving cars, that we would take our hands off the, off the steering wheel and be taking naps or doing whatever it is that we do or want to do while we're driving. And his response was, no way. I would never do anything like that. It was impossible for him to wrap his mind around something so amazing, so unbelievable. Well, have you ever heard something that sounded unbelievable to you? Have you ever heard something that was so amazing and so intriguing that your mind just couldn't fathom it? Well, this morning in our text, we have two people that we are very familiar with, Abraham and Sarah, encountering impossible news. And within their encounter, we're confronted with two things this morning. Not three points today two points today, we're confronted with, one, the assurance of peace, and second, we are confronted with the expectation of belief. So the assurance of peace and the expectation of belief, and within these two points that we are confronted with, um, through the example of Abraham and Sarah, we, we are beginning to get a picture, a more clearer picture of what this promised Messiah looks like. And hopefully you'll be able to see that this morning. So first, the assurance of peace in verses 1 through 8. So we left off last week in chapter 17 with Abraham being reminded once again of this promise of God from chapter 12, if you remember. We saw God, even in his blundering around and, and trying to come up with plan A and trying to do things on his own, we saw God not push Abraham away, not reject Abraham and Sarah, but actually double down on his promise to make him a great nation. So much so that he changes Abraham's not name to remind him that this, this is a, this is a really reality. A name that actually means the father, to, the father of a multitude of nations. So every time his name is called, he's reminded that he will be the father of a multitude of nations. And then if that's not enough, God introduces this practice of circumcision to, to not just for Abraham's sake, but to say, hey, this, is, this covenant that I am making with you, this promise that I have told you about, is going to carry on for generations to come. And circumcision is to be that sign that this is going to happen, this visible sign, this visible reality. So this is a way in which 
which they can see and be reminded that God is, is going to change the hearts of His people. And He's going to change the hearts of His people in Christ, the Messiah, who is promised. But God is not done reassuring His people. Look at verses 1 through 3. The author writes, And the Lord appeared to him by the oaks of Mamre as he sat at the door of his tent in the heat of the day. He lifted up his eyes and looked, and behold, three men were standing in front of him. When he saw them, he ran from the tent door to meet them and bowed himself to the earth and said, O Lord, if I have found favor in your sight, do not pass by your servant. So in this account we now see that God is not just speaking to Abraham from a distance. He's not just kind of audibly speaking to Abraham and he can't be seen. Now we see that God actually appears to Abraham. Which is significant because it means that God came down to actually be with Abraham. To walk alongside him. And in this coming down, much is communicated through the feast that's described to us in verses 4 through 8. Now, you may have noticed the detail of verses 4 through 8 in this, in this feast, and you may have thought, as I thought this week, uh, why so much detail? Why is this, this whole meal that Abraham is preparing for these three seemingly random people initially, why is that so important? What's the point in offering us this account of a meal? Well, I'm glad you asked. Because all of the details offered to us, one, give us confidence in the reliability of Scripture. So this is not some general overview of a meal. It's not like, like me saying to you, I went to, to, to Chick-fil-A this week and had dinner. It's really unimportant news to you. So we know there must be more being offered to us here because of these details. Because of this kind of pause in the narrative, we could say. In fact, a feast like this was a way in which a covenant was finalized. Sort of like when you sign the last piece of paperwork for a major purchase, or maybe you make that last, uh, last mortgage payment, and you, and you go out and you, you celebrate around a table, around food and drink. This meal was a feast signifying peace between two opposing parties. We could say that it's a feast between friends. Friends that are now at peace with one another. Because three times in the Bible, Abraham is called a friend of God. And this is, just, this is not just a nicety that, 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 uh, that, that God has done or, that, or the writers have, have just tried to communicate to you. God and Abraham were actual friends. Listen to the language of other writers in 2 Chronicles 20, verse 7, uh, Did you not, our God, drive out the inhabitants of this land before your people Israel and give it forever to the descendants of Abraham, your friend? And then in the New Testament, James chapter 2, verse 23, And the scripture was fulfilled that says, Abraham believed God and it was counted to him as righteousness and he was called a friend of God. And then saving the most significant for last uh, in Isaiah 41.8 because God himself says it. But you, Israel, my servant, Jacob, whom I have chosen, the offspring of Abraham, 
my friend. So one explanation that has been suggested for the reason Abraham is called a friend of God is because of the familiar and intimate way he entertains and converses with his heavenly visitors here in verses 1 through 8. It was an act of friendship toward God on Abraham's part. He was moving towards God in this friendship. It was not a mere transaction to say, okay, God, you've made this promise with me. You've, you've signed this covenant with me, um, so to speak, by your own blood. And so now we're just going to have this nice meal to kind of celebrate around. It wasn't a mere transaction in that way. It was a friendship. It was an intimate relationship. Now, friendship, I believe, is a hard thing for us to wrap our minds around in our culture today because we're so bad at being friends. And you know that to be true. We're unreliable and fickle. We've allowed social networks to let us call people we've never met or will never meet friends. And so we say we're friends with that person or we're friends with that person, and I wonder if they would even say the same about you. Professor Wesley Hill, in his book, Spiritual Friendship, writes what true friendship should look like, which I think is a beautiful description. He says, we need something more when it comes to friendship. We need people who know what time our plan lands, who, who will worry about us when we don't show up at the time we, we said we would. We need people uh, we can call and tell about that funny thing that happened in the hallway after class. We need the assurance that come hell or high water, a few people will stay with us, loving us in spite of our faults and caring for us when we're down. And vice versa. That's a friendship. And for you married folk, before you can say, oh, well, that's my spouse or my best friend, your spouse can't fully fulfill every part of friendship for you. You need other people in your life, other friends that you can rely upon other people that you have an intimate relationship with that can do the things that Wesley Hill talks about here. We even see Jesus make this transition with his disciples in John chapter 15. He says to them, No longer do I call you servants, for the servant does not know what his master is doing, but I have called you friends. For all that I have heard from my Father I have made known to you. Because to be a friend of God is to be one who is walking before Him. One who is abiding in Him. So the question that lies before you within that is, are you a friend of God? Is God your friend? Well, the second question you may have about this, uh, these first eight verses here is, who are these heavenly visitors? There's some debate around this. Automatically, if, if you are uh, using hyperbole that we, used, uh, that we learned in our uh, biblical theology class this morning, um, automatically you might say, well, there's three people here, and they seem, to be, uh, they seem to be regarded as one in the dialogue with Abraham. So obviously this is the Trinity. This is the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. So that might be the initial reaction that we have, and many have made that reaction. But if you take into consideration the context, because that's good biblical theology, I'm just putting a plug in for next year, okay? If you're not there yet, 
next year. So if you take into consideration the context, it's more likely that one of the visitors is God, specifically God the Son, and the two other visitors are the angels that went on to Sodom and rescued Lot in Genesis chapter 19, where we'll get next week. Nonetheless, it does place an emphasis on Hebrews chapter 13, verse 2, when the author advises us to show kindness to strangers because some have entertained angels unawares. But for all this, all this, we want to focus on how this meal, described in verses 4 through 8, communicates what God wants his people to understand about his relationship with them. Because just like in the New Testament, when God comes down in the flesh, he was communicating reconciliation. He was communicating peace between two opposing parties. Colossians chapter 1, verses 19 through 20. Paul says, For in him all the fullness of God was pleased to dwell in Christ, and through him to reconcile to himself all things, whether on earth or in heaven, making peace by the blood of the cross. And it's here in this meal that we just read about that God is doing something similar by making known an assurance of peace to Abraham. To say that, our, that my covenant with you is confirmed, that I will do this, that I will reconcile my creation with my holiness. I will do this. It's an assurance of peace. So to have a meal to solidify a covenant uh, was a common practice in the ancient world. We see this practice a little later in Genesis 26 between Isaac, who is Abraham and Sarah's son, and Abimelech, which, which reads, They said, We see plainly that the Lord has been with you. So we said, Let there be a swarm packed between us, between you and us, and let us make a covenant with you, that you will do us no harm, to be at peace, just as we have not touched you and have done to you nothing but good and have sent you away in peace. You are now the blessed of the Lord. So he made them a feast and they ate and drank. We also see this at the ratification of the covenant at Mount Sinai in Exodus chapter 24. It tells us that the people of the covenant ate and drank in peace before the Lord. They feasted before the Lord because they were at peace with him. Then in Leviticus chapter 3 and Leviticus chapter 7, the, the peace offering that's talked about there was intended to signify that the worshiper enjoyed a peaceful relationship with the Lord. That's what it meant. That the worshiper was at peace with the Holy God. Then, when you jump into the New Testament, you see how Jesus, through the symbolism of eating and drinking, teaches about his own sacrifice. So in John chapter 6, verses 53 through 58, Jesus says, Truly, truly, I say to you, unless you eat the flesh of the Son of Man and drink his blood, you have no life in you. Whoever feeds on my flesh and drinks my blood has eternal life, and I will raise him up on the last day. For my flesh is true food, and my blood is true drink. Whoever feeds on my flesh and drinks my blood abides in me, and I in him as the living Father sent me, and I live because of the Father. So whoever feeds on me, he also will live because of me. This is the bread that came down from heaven, not like the bread the fathers ate and died. Whoever feeds on this bread will live 
forever. And you could probably add on there, at peace with God. Now obviously, if you've been hanging around CTK long enough, you'll know that uh, this church celebrates the Lord's Supper every Sunday, and we do that because, because this celebration is a reality of what is taking place of what Jesus just talked about there in, Matthew, in, in Matthew's Gospel. This, this reenactment that we go through every single week is a direct parallel to Israel's peace offering in Leviticus because it's only those at peace with God that can eat and drink. It's only those who have believed God and what He has done for them in Christ who can come to the table and feast. Then you also have Jesus demonstrating this in a very practical way this very act from Genesis 18, when in his ministry, in his earthly ministry, he stays and dines in people's homes. You may have have caught that in your reading of the gospel. So in places like Luke 19.5 with the man Zacchaeus, Jesus says to him, Zacchaeus, hurry and come down, for I must stay at your house today. And then later, after they have feasted together, Jesus proclaims in verse 9, Today, salvation or peace has come to this house since he also is a son of Abraham. Then in Revelation chapter 3, verse 20, Jesus says to the church in Laodicea, He says, Behold, I stand at the door and knock. If anyone hears my voice and opens the door, I will come into him and eat with him and he with me. To so the details being offered here are not something for us to kind of skim over in our Bible reading. Because there's a great significance here in God visiting Abraham in this way. Because it's here that that God reveals the specific fulfillment of the promise. And I think it's okay to speculate a little bit here that God wanted to be the one to reveal this good news to Abraham, not off in a distance, Or sending a messenger to say, hey, this is going to happen, Abraham. But God wanted to be there in person. Just like you like to reveal good news to someone in person. You don't like to do it over the phone or over over a text message because you want to see their reaction. You You want to be able to experience what they are experiencing with them. So you go to them. And I think this is what God is doing with Abraham. God, in the same way, wanted to be the one to say to him in person, this time next year, you will have a son. And then through this revelation, we're confronted with our second point in verses 9 through 15, which is the expectation of belief. Look there with me again at those verses. So they said to him, where is Sarah, your wife? And he said, she is in the tent. The Lord said, I will surely return to you about this time next year, and Sarah, your wife, shall have a son. And Sarah was listening at the tent door behind him. Now Abraham and Sarah were old, advanced in years. The way of women had ceased to be with Sarah. So Sarah laughed to herself, saying, After I am worn out, and my Lord is old, shall I have pleasure? The Lord said to Abraham, Why did Sarah laugh and say, Shall I indeed bear a child now that I am old? Is anything too hard for the Lord? At the appointed time, I will return to you about this time next year, and Sarah shall have a son. But Sarah denied it, saying, I did not laugh, for she was afraid. He said, no, but you did laugh. Well, the fact that God reacts the way he does towards Sarah in these verses is an indicator to us 
that he expects them to believe him. He expects that out of them. As he asks rhetorically in verse 14, is anything too hard for the Lord? Is there anything impossible for me? And the reason nothing is too hard for the Lord, if you remember, is because of the way he identified himself in chapter 17. He calls himself God Almighty. Abraham, I am God Almighty. And this is what I'm going to do. As if to say, the work I'm about to do can only be accomplished by an Almighty God. There will be no doubt that this is God's work. I mean, that's why the, the author of Genesis repeats over and over again that they are old and that Sarah is worn out and barren. This is impossible, humanly speaking. So think about that hard thing that you may be walking through right now in your life. Or, or the hard thing that you will walk through because it will come. That, that thing you think... Uh, impossible, that thing you think way too hard, that you believe uh, is too hard not only for you or anybody else to kind of, to kind of rectify or, or, or to come in to bring some solution, but now you're beginning to think that it's impossible for God because you're just sitting in it. And it doesn't seem to be, doesn't, there doesn't seem to be any answers coming for you. So my question to you is, do you believe that nothing is too hard for God? Do you believe that in your own life? That there's nothing that is impossible for Him to handle or do? No matter how tragic it might look. Or how despairing it may be. Because if you are one who believes God, not just believes in God, but you believe God, so you believe God in, in all of the promises that He has given to you in His Word and through Christ. If you are someone who believes God, then He expects you to believe that. He expects you to believe that nothing is too hard for Him. I think a lot of our unbelief in this way comes from our own forgetfulness of who God is. And it makes more sense, we think, to view things from our perspective. I, I'm way more logical than God. I can work this out, I can change this around, I can speak to these people, I can do this particular thing, and, and maybe it will all work out. So it's easier to do that. Rather than, than through the lens of who God is. Through the lens of this Almighty God. I mean, that's what Sarah did, right? I mean, Sarah's looking at her situation and saying, um, I am 99 years old. I am worn out, I am barren, and my, my husband is even older than I am. How in the world will I ever have the pleasure of having a child? From a human perspective, that's what she saw. And you can't really blame Sarah for that. I mean, uh, because that's, it does. From her perspective, it looked like it was impossible. And it was. As far as we know, she's never seen or heard of anyone that this has happened to. There's no incredible stories about this that they can look to or read about and say, well, this, this particular thing happened, um, this, so it's going to work out for me. I can do this. And so Sarah laughs. Her first reaction is to laugh. 
Now, I can relate to that. I mean, we, we had a baby in our 40s, surprise, all of those things. Um, I don't know if we thought it was an impossibility, but I know my first reaction when Tara told me was, I laughed hysterically. So, Tara did not. She was crying. <laughs> but at least she didn't laugh. <laughs> but Sarah laughed, and, and, and like Sarah, we also laugh, don't we? Because we forget to look at the Scriptures and see all of the impossible things that God has already done. All we have to do is look back at God's Word, which is entirely true and given to us in love, right? He brings a flood that destroys the entire world. He rescued an entire nation of people, millions of people, from an impossible situation in Egypt. And within that impossible situation in Exodus, you see all sorts of other impossible situations that happen. He gives a random woman named Ruth. If you ever read the story of Ruth when you get there in your Bible reading plan, it's an impossible situation in which she is in. She has lost her husband. There is no hope for her to have any other husband by this woman, Naomi. So she goes back to her and God provides for her a husband. And not only that, it's a husband in which the line of Christ is going to come through. Impossible. She could not have orchestrated that on her own. He raises up a a shepherd boy to slay an impossible giant and eventually become the greatest earthly king God's people ever had. He saves a murderer, a persecutor of the church, Paul, to become the greatest evangelist and church planter the world has ever known. And then he sends his only son on this seemingly backwards, impossible mission that requires him to lose to win. I mean, he sets him up for an impossible situation, it seems. So when the impossible or hard thing comes your way, this is your application. Ask the question that God Almighty asked of Abraham and Sarah here in verse 14. Is anything too hard for the Lord? This phrase basically means to be wonderful, extraordinary, surpassing because this is the way the Lord does his work in his way as one commentator said God delights in doing that which is impossible marvelous even even surpassing and we see this in the account of Abraham and Sarah remember both Abraham and Sarah laugh at God's news if you remember last week we kind of glossed over it a little bit but Abraham laughs as well Sarah laughs. And God makes sure that they remember their response to His promise to them by literally naming their child laughter. So every time they called Isaac's name, they would be reminded that they, could not, they, that they had not initially believed that the impossible could happen. That God would actually be true to His promises in this incredible way. And I'm sure they would simply shake their heads and smile at times when they would call Isaac and remember back to that day. Even later, we see in Genesis chapter 21 that Sarah says, at the birth of Isaac, God has brought me laughter, and everyone who hears will laugh over me. Who would have said to Abraham that Sarah would nurse children? Yet I have borne him a son in my old age, in his old age. So Sarah's unbelief turns into unbelievable joy 
at what God has done. And the same can be true for you. Your unbelief in God and what He has done can be turned into unbelievable joy. A joy that that surpasses all understanding, humanly speaking. Through belief in what He has done for you in Christ. Allow God to work the impossible in your life and you will be changed in this way. Think about another woman named Mary in the New Testament who is presented with news that is more impossible than what Sarah is hearing. It is more impossible news uh, or hard news that you will ever hear in your entire life. In Luke's um, Gospel, chapter 1, after the angel tells Mary she is going to conceive the Messiah by the Holy Spirit, which is, which is crazy news. We, we kind of gloss over that during, during Christmas time and we don't really dive into that, but that is something unexpected and unbelievable. I mean, Mary even asked the question, I mean, that we would all ask, how will this be since I am a virgin? How, how will I be able to have a child? if not through natural means. So he then explains how it will happen, then he reminds her, it's interesting, he, he says, this is how it will happen, the Holy Spirit will come upon you, and you will, you will become pregnant with the Messiah. And then he reminds her, just kind of throws it in, as kind of a side note, that her relative Elizabeth, who was both in her old age and barren, has conceived a child. So this angel kind of cleverly kind of hands Mary this impossible situation so that she can see God at work. And he follows this statement up in verse 37 with these words from Genesis 18.14. For nothing will be impossible with God. He proclaims that to Mary. Nothing will be impossible. And then listen to Mary's beautiful, believing response in verse 38. She says, Behold... I am the servant of the Lord. Let it be to me according to your word. She doesn't hesitate in her response. No doubting. No laughter. Why? Well, I've said before, I've preached in in Luke before during Christmas time, but I've said before that Mary was a student of the Scriptures. Uh, Just take a moment to read her song of praise in Luke chapter 1, verses 46 through 55 this afternoon. And then let that be your your afternoon, your Sabbath exercise. And then cross-reference her lyrics to see how often she quotes Scripture in her song of praise that she sings. To remind yourself of the goodness and the mightiness of God. Mary doesn't hesitate. Mary doesn't laugh because she knows that God is mighty. That she knows that God has done great things because she knows the Bible. And I say that to say that Mary could only respond in this way because she knew that. She knew and believed in what the Scriptures taught. She knew and believed what the promises were. She knew and believed even God's promise to Abraham that, that his offspring would be the Savior of the world. And she understood that the Messiah... The snake crusher that was promised in Genesis 3.15. And that she was the one who would give birth to him. That the covenant, the promise to Abraham was coming true in her. Physically. Impossible and incredible news 
that is only accomplished by Almighty God in the person and work of Jesus Christ. And this is a reminder to all of us that nothing is impossible for those in covenant fellowship with Him. Or to say it in another way, nothing is impossible or too hard for those who are friends of the Lord. Because nothing will ever be too hard for Him. Amen. Let's pray. Father in heaven, we thank you that the reason nothing is too hard for you is because uh, we are able to see um, that you that you accomplished uh, the hardest, most impossible work that you could accomplish um, through your Son Jesus Christ, through the person and work of Christ. We see this impossible act take place uh, before our eyes in the Scripture. It was impossible for us as mere human beings to reconcile ourselves back to you. An impossible situation, a hard situation. And yet you enter in and you give the solution to this impossible situation for us through the death, life, death, and resurrection of your son Jesus. God, we thank you. I pray that we would be able to to, uh, have that gospel witness before us Constantly, even as we enter into hard and seemingly impossible things in our own life, knowing that if you accomplished that, that you will accomplish the good work, this, those good works within our life as well in those impossible situations. And it's in the name of Christ that we pray all of these things. Amen.